He loves us. He really loves us. There's no doubt of it. There's no denying it. He loves you. He really loves you. I want you to hear a story from the life of Jesus today. It's our gospel reading. And as you do, we're going to stay standing because I want you to just be part of the crowd. You're watching this unfold. And as you do, I want you to watch the love of Jesus. Look at his eyes. Listen to his words. Hear the love pour from this man. Soon afterward, Jesus went to the town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. He approached the town. A dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. Alone. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her. His heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the stretcher they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. God has come to help his people. God has come to help you. I don't know what you carried in here today. But for you, it's the equivalent of carrying that stretcher. And the sadness or the fear or the pain, whatever it is, it's overwhelming. There's a God in heaven who loves you. Jesus looks and his heart goes out to you. And so today, as we take our moment to be silent, I want you to think about the loving eyes of Jesus looking back at you today, letting you know he really does care about whatever that burden is you carried in the room. Be quiet before the Lord. And we'll give you a moment, and then we'll move to one of four stations around the room, two in the back, two in the front, and we'll partake of communion. Take a piece of bread and a cup, And be reminded that these aren't just uh, elements to be enjoyed. This is the love of Jesus shared with you and me. And as you do, there will be a song played. And I want you to catch the words, just be held. Just allow yourself today and whatever you're dealing with to be held in the loving arms of Jesus. all together everybody needs you strong but life hits you out of nowhere and barely leaves you holding on and when you're tired of fighting chained by your control there's freedom and surrender lay it down and 
go. So when you're on your knees and answers seem so far away, you're not alone. Stop holding on and just be here. Your world's not falling apart, it's falling into place. I'm on the throne. Stop holding on and just be here. Just be here. Just be here. If your eyes are on the storm, you wonder if I love you still. But if your eyes are on the cross, you know I always have and I always will. Then not a tear is wasted. In time you'll understand I'm painting beauty with the ashes Your life is in my hands So when you're on your knees An answer seems so far away You're not alone Stop holding on and just be here Your world's not falling apart It's falling into place I'm on the throne Stop holding Just be here, just be here, just be here. Lift your hands, lift your eyes, in the storm is where you'll find me, and where you are, I'll hold your heart, I'll hold your heart, come to me. Seems so far away. You're not alone. Stop holding on and just be here. Your world's not falling apart, it's falling into place. I'm on the throne. Stop holding on and just be here. That idea is overwhelming, isn't it? Just, just be held. Like an infant in the nursery, a guy as big as Jack Rustman can be held in God's embrace. It's, I hope that hits you this morning. Welcome to Southfield. Uh, my name is Brian, and as our servers move to receive the morning offering, uh, on your way in, you should have received a folder. On the inside of that folder is a card, and you know the routine. We like everybody to fill that out each and every week so that we know what's going on in your life, and it's an opportunity for uh, you to get involved, ask questions, do all kinds of, um, do all kinds of good stuff. So go ahead, uh, fill that out real quick, and drop it in the offering as it's passed. Now, uh, we have a few announcements for you as they uh, come forward. The first of which is we have a camp out happening on June 17th. That's the, actually the day that kids get back from Green Lake. Uh, we are going to be camping out on the property. It'll be not the, it's not the first time we've done it. 
But it'll be a really good time uh, to be able to get together, spend some time together. And there's enough wood out there for the second biggest fire in property history. For those of you who know the history of the property. But the thing about it, uh, the thing that's going to make it extra special uh, is that it is an opportunity to spend uh, one last get together with Daryl and Christina and the rest of the Belshan clan uh, as they get ready to move on to, uh, to Peoria. So again, if, if you know them and you know just how involved they've been in all throughout uh, the life of Southfield, be sure uh, to, to come join us in that because it'll be uh, a really neat way to, to send them off into their, into their next chapter. Uh, we have day camp registration open, so if you haven't signed up your kids, you're going to want to make sure to go on the church website and get the, get signed up. Uh, a lot of you have been sharing links on Facebook and on other social media uh, platforms, which is really cool. The, the thing is, we want to make sure that it's not just a dead link. We want everybody to, to get signed up, so um, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to, to plan things when we know exactly how many kids are going to be in each breakout and things like that. So if you're a Southfielder and you have a kid or kids who are coming to day camp and you know they are, but you haven't signed them up, do it today. This is the last warning. Do it today. Uh, if you've been waiting for that, uh, for to ask that friend of yours who you think you you know their kids might want to come, don't wait. Start asking. Get that ask out today. Get them signed up so that we can be as prepared as possible to ha- just have uh, an amazing week of day camp. Speaking of camp, we also uh, are leaving next Sunday for Green Lake. Now, uh, I've been getting asked a lot of questions about it. The first that I'm just going to get out of the way. We're leaving at 3 p.m., so you need to be here at 2.30, all right? All your students who are going will be getting uh, some information on that throughout the week uh, just to make sure that that is not, you know, we don't leave anybody behind, but we will be leaving the parking lot at 3 o'clock with three 15-passenger vans, four other vehicles, uh, because we have 62 students going with us to Green Lake. Part of me is just overwhelmed with how effective this trip is and how much it, we see change in the lives of our students. And the other part of me is absolutely terrified because I've never had to deal with this many people on one trip. And I'm just, ugh. anyway. So with that, let's uh, be praying this week for our adult leaders because, again, we have 10 of us going and it's going to be a, a restless well, week of sleep. Uh, so. I'm sure by the end of the week, if you cut us open, uh, coffee would just be pouring out because uh, we're going to need a lot of extra sleep. So uh, just be praying for our adult leaders and as well our students. Uh, We have a lot of students who actually invited friends who aren't a part of our church that are going to be coming along uh, on this trip. And that, again, that's so cool that they feel safe enough to invite their friends. But just be praying for those those students that they find, uh, that they can possibly find God uh, in this trip. With, uh, with that, we're going to start our service, and I hope you're not on your phone. Uh, if you are, look up, because we've got a video to start us off. My Pinterest account is who I wish to be. My Instagram is what I think my life looks like. And my Facebook is who I want others to think I am. My Twitter may be the closest to self-authenticity, if only my tweets weren't either too well thought through or too carelessly posted. Whatever the case may be, only one truth stands. To touch. To speak. To look upon. To experience another's company, a true connection, 
cannot be replicated through the dim glare of any device. Bottom line, look up from the screen. You just missed something beautiful. True connection cannot be replicated through the dim glare of any device. It's worth writing down. Uh, that had nothing to do with the message today at all. It's just a public service announcement, maybe a little bit of a summer, summer assignment, you know? Come and get your eyes up, look up. In fact, it may be helpful for those of you that have digital natives, if you would just every once in a while say to them, instead of put your phone down, Hashtag look up. If you say hashtag in front of anything, they pay attention. So just hashtag look up. And, and by the way, uh, this applies to the geezers too. I see plenty of that going on. I mean, we're just, we've forgotten what people's eyes look like. It's time. It's time to look up and enjoy each other once again. So it is summer and we are going to be breaking into a series that, that I really enjoy. We try around here to be as um, relevant and practical as possible in our teaching. Uh, we're, we're always trying to teach, uh, speak to what's going on in your daily life. And I realize while we, while we hit that target a lot, sometimes we miss it simply because we're not mind readers. We can't know everything you're thinking, everything you're going through. And so we gave up mind reading and we said, so what's going on in your head? And we gave you a chance to send emails or write on cards questions that you have. And you have poured in some fantastic questions. We're going to be covering them all of June and the first Sunday of July. And the questions fall basically into four different categories. Some of them are like broad theological topics, problem of good and evil, that sort of stuff. The second category narrows a little bit. I call them just Bible questions. Why did Jesus say that? Or what did he mean? Or what's going on over here? So kind of interpretive questions. The third set of questions are, are Southfield questions. Why do we do this this way? What, what's this all about? Maybe you're new to the church family and you're just trying to figure that out. And the fourth set are relational questions. And, and there were some really good relational questions. How do I deal with this thing that's going on in my family or with someone I know or with a friend? So in fact, one of the relational questions came up several times and we're just going to take a whole Sunday for it. So June 26th, last Sunday of June, we're talking about forgiveness. I mean, this one kept coming up and it's funny because everybody wrote basically the same thing. I know I'm supposed to forgive, but you know, and, 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 and I'm telling you, that's, it's, it's tough because the practical aspects of forgiveness aren't always easy. What if it's a, a truly heinous sin? How do I just put that in the rearview mirror? And what does reconciliation look like? And all those pieces. So, so we'll save that and all that day we'll just talk about that. Like I said, there were relational things having to do with family. And so Father's Day, June 19th, we're going to deal with this question as well as other relational questions. What's the best thing I can do to help my kids love and want God? You know, I don't want to get them to 18 fully baked and now they just decide, hey, it's heathen time. I want to make sure that, uh, you know, God's a part of their life. How do I ensure that as a parent? What can I do? Now what I'm going to do is run through really fast a whole bunch of the questions. And I want you to look at them and see at least one or two that you think to yourself, if I miss that, I'm going to just, I'm going to cry like a baby, okay? The, I want to be here for this. So one of the questions is, so why does Jesus keep telling people not to talk about him? He'll do a miracle and say, don't tell anybody. What's going on there? What's that all about? The Trinity, explain it in three words or less, okay? Um, 
If you can help me on that, I'd appreciate it. Holy Spirit, we don't seem to talk about him very much around here from this person's perspective. Why? What's that all about? Why, why is it that my Bible has less books than a Catholic Bible? You know, I have a Catholic friend, they have the Book of Wisdom, all these other books we don't. We have a cheaper version, can we not read as well? What, what's going on there? Why do they have a bigger Bible than us? Why do we do communion every week? Uh, maybe you came from a once-a-month tradition or once-a-quarter tradition or, or whenever you feel like a tradition. So why do we do communion every week? Does salvation happen at a point in time or is it a process? Do I pray in order to become a Christian? Is it something that one day I wake up and go, oh, look, I'm a Christian now. How does this work? What does it look like? I, I love this one. I'm assuming this was addressed to me. What's the greatest opportunity facing Southfield? From my perspective, what's the big opportunity on there? And the flip side of that coin, what's the greatest danger facing Southfield? What, what do you see that has you concerned? I love this one. Someone said, would you do a quick review of the past series? If you want to get out of the water, you got to get out of the boat. Now, the part that's amazing about that, we did that series a long time ago. This person's been around, so we'll talk about that in a few minutes. What's the deal with the fig tree? Jesus is walking along. He sees the fig tree. He goes, you're dead. And it is. And he's like, okay, what am I supposed to get? That was inspirational. You know, you're kind of doing your Bible reading in the morning. You're like, okay, so I guess I'm supposed to kill tomato plants. I don't know. I don't get this. What's this about? Why choose Christianity over Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, or, or et cetera, whatever religion that is? So, I mean, just why choose that? I love this one. Talk about grace. Does grace mean you can live however you want? That you're just, you know, hey, do whatever you want, pray a little prayer, ask God's forgiveness, keep rolling along the road. How does our church balance confronting sinful lifestyles and habits and creating an inviting environment? You know, you want to make sure that lost people are coming to God, but lost people are living in a mess. How do we make sure there's an inviting environment so that they know that they can come to God and at the same time it doesn't seem as if we're condoning sin or condoning a sinful lifestyle? How do we hold those things, that tension? How do we hold that in balance? Uh, what are the biblical roles of husband and wife in the home? Uh, when, uh, Kim's doing that one, by the way. When a, when a person relays a prophetic word from the Lord... How exact does it need to be? And by exact, they meant precision. You know, is 75% okay, 50% okay? Some of you are saying, what are you talking about, prophetic word from the Lord? That's why we're doing the question. Okay, um, how do I offer correction to a fellow believer without judging them? Or maybe not just without judging them, but without them feeling a sense of judgment. How do I do that? Um, how do we understand verses that say we're to have nothing to do with certain people? A few weeks ago, we're reading in 1 Timothy, and it goes through this list of sins, and it says, have nothing to do with these people. Well, how in the world are you supposed to reach a person for God if you're supposed to have nothing to do with them? What does the Bible say about the afterlife in the Old Testament and New Testament? That'll take about four minutes. Okay. And then why does God let bad things happen to good people? That's another, another four minutes. So we're rolling along. I mean, you can see we've got a lot of questions. It's going to be, um, what does the Bible say about Satan's role in scripture and in history and the, and his influence on man or our own free will? So yeah, five weeks in five weeks, we'll cover all of that. I hope, or at least one of them. Uh, it's going to be a really, really, really good summer as we kick this off and get started just answering your questions. And again, it, I'm sure this is going to raise some questions. Feel free to continue to email them or, or if something doesn't still seem clear, interact with that so that we can make sure that we get down to the answer. So we're going to try doing four of these this morning. And I'm going to talk so fast. I'm going to prove I'm from New York. Listen really fast. Here we go. Uh, okay. So why does Jesus keep telling people not to talk about him? You know, you have this thing that goes on in Scripture, that, that Jesus will perform a miracle. Jesus will make a statement, and then he'll say, but please, keep it to yourself. 
I mean, wait a second. Are we supposed to be telling people about Jesus? And now Jesus is saying, yeah, but don't, don't talk about it. I don't want it out there. What's that all about? Now, here's what I want to do. I want to not only answer the question, but I'm hopeful that we can go about this in a way that you'll figure out how to answer the question yourself. I don't want to do the old, you know, go out in the yard, find the worm, smash the worm nice and, and then just come up and drop it in your beak. I want to teach you how to find your own worms. Okay, so, so here's what you would do if you were trying to understand this question and work it through. You look at every place in the Bible that Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. And as you look at every place, you start to try to find what are the threads, what are the themes, what are the things going on there that are common in each of these passages. We can't look at all at them all, but let's look at a number of them. So Mark chapter 7 says Jesus left tired. He goes to a place called the Ten Towns or Decapolis. There's a deaf man there with a speech impediment that's brought to him. And the people begged Jesus to lay their hands on him, to lay his hands on them and to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. That's interesting. I mean, don't miss that. Because more often than not, a miracle is very public. But in this case, he says, come on over here. I don't want anybody seeing what's going on here. And, and then it says, he put his fingers in the man's ears. Then spitting on his own finger, he touched the man's tongue. Man, if your doctor did that. Oh, my word. Looking up into heaven, he sighed and said, Ephthata, which means be open. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. And it says, Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone But the more he told them not to tell, the more the news spread. And so some people look at this and go, Jesus was just a fantastic marketer. He knew that if you say don't, they'll do. So you just keep saying don't. Before you know it, the word will spread all over the place. I don't think that's what's going on. You've got to read the rest of the passage. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. Now, if you know the rest of the Bible, does that not sound a little bit familiar? If you know Isaiah, if you know some of the Old Testament, you know these are words that were attributed to the Messiah. He'd make the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He'd do these miracles. So this isn't just that he did a miracle. They're already pulling threads and saying, hmm, this could be the one. This could be the one we've been waiting for. They're starting to figure out some things about this man's identity. Luke chapter 8, on the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting there for them. And, and there's a man there, his name is Jairus, and he's the leader of the synagogue. He falls at Jesus' feet. He says, come to my house. My 12-year-old daughter is dying. And so Jesus says, okay, we'll do that. And as they're going, there's this little disruption. A woman comes up. She's been sick for a long time. She touches Jesus' hem of his garment. Immediately she's healed. Jesus turns and says, who touched me? His disciples say, what do you mean who touched you? It's a big crowd. Are you kidding me? And they go through this whole thing, and she admits that she's the one that touched Jesus. And yeah, okay, you got that part. In the meantime, there's a servant that comes from Jairus' house that says, your daughter's dead. There's no use troubling the teacher anymore. And I love these beautiful, loving, compassionate words from Jesus. Here's what it says. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Just have faith. She will be healed. What must have been going through Jairus' mind at that moment? He's been told his daughter is dead. And Jesus says, no, we'll work it out. Don't worry. She'll be healed. But the crowd laughed at him. Why did they laugh? Well, when Jesus shows up, he says, hey, she's just sleeping. And they say, no, she's not sleeping. She is quite dead. They go up, they take the girl by the hand, and he says in a loud voice, my child, get up. At that moment, life returned to her, and she immediately stood up. And Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted they not tell anyone what happened, which is really intriguing because they're going to walk out of the room with a live child. And everybody knows. So what's going on there, okay? Keep going. 
Matthew 16, Jesus is with the disciples. He says, who do people say that I am? And they offer a number of suggestions. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Go down a little further in the passage. It says, then he sternly warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. We already have two passages now that have had this Messiah piece, the piece about his identity as the Messiah. Let's keep going. Matthew chapter 12. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So this is the man who has a shriveled hand. It's the Sabbath. He holds out his hand. Jesus heals it. And this does not make the Pharisees very happy because he's breaking the law according to them. The Pharisees called a meeting and plotted how they could kill Jesus. They're going to wipe him out. It says, but Jesus knew what they were planning to do, so he left that area. The Bible actually says he withdrew. In other words, he knows they're trying to kill him, so he got out of there. Not in fear, but He knows it's not time to die yet. So he got out of there. People follow him. He healed all the sick, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. He didn't say, don't tell what I did. He said, don't tell who I am. And this fulfilled the prophecy Isaiah concerning him. Listen to these words. See if they sound familiar. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. This is my beloved who pleases me. Heard those words before? This is my beloved son. Hear him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it goes on to talk about the identity of the Messiah, ending with saying, and his name will be the hope of all the world. So these people are starting to make the connections. This guy isn't just a healer. This guy is probably the Messiah. This is the one. Six days later, Mark 9, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain to be alone. When they're there, Jesus turns absolutely brilliant, dazzling. Moses and Elijah appear. They're celebrating. They're like, let's make tents here. Let's stay here forever. They're coming back down the mountain. Jesus told them not to tell anyone what they had seen. But this time it's not, period. Don't tell them what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So on this one, he says there's a timetable involved. Don't tell yet. So they did keep it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. It's interesting that the other question didn't come up, you know, about his identity as Messiah, but this idea of rising from the dead, what's that all about? Now, as we keep reading these kinds of passages, we come along with things like this. John 7 and John 8. There are two times at least, and many more, that it says the leaders tried to arrest him but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. John 8, I am the light of the world. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. His mother says, these people need wine, make some wine. He says, woman, don't you know, my time has not yet come. This is all playing together. And the playing together is that it is not time yet for the identity of the Messiah to be revealed. And it's not time yet for the identity of the Messiah to be revealed because these people are going to try to turn Jesus into an earthly king instead of a heavenly king. They're going to try to get him to set up an earthly kingdom instead of a heavenly kingdom. I mean, he makes all this bread and fish for people and people go, this guy has the best food stamp program going I've ever seen. Let's put him in charge of food. They don't see the heavenly bread involved. I am the bread of life. They just want to be fed with the immediate. He has this understanding that if people start adopting him as the Messiah, they'll make him into the Messiah they want him to be. An earthly king who would free them from Roman rule instead of a heavenly king who would free them from Satan, sin, death, and hell. And that was far more important. He cared more about God's agenda, the Father's agenda, and the Father's timetable than his own. There were things he needed to accomplish in those three years. 
And the last thing they needed was for the agenda to be diverted with an earthly kingship. When he was recognized as the Messiah, it would be on the cross as he died for the sins of the world. That's when the time would have fully come. And that's why Jesus keeps delaying. Please don't let people know who I am yet. Because there's a mission to be fulfilled. And my mission is a heavenly mission, not an earthly one. John 17 says, after these things, this is his high priestly prayer. It says, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The time has come. Now it's here. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. So there was timing involved, and it was important that the timing was absolutely perfect. The identity of the Messiah was to happen at just the right time. If anything, our question should be here, not why did Jesus tell people not to say, but why did people say when Jesus said not to? Why did they go around blabbing when he said, keep your mouth shut? What, what is it that caused them to have the freedom to disobey the Son of God? And obviously, they were so excited about what happened, they couldn't hold it to themselves. So that's the first one. Let's go to the next one. Why do we do communion every week? Great question. Like I said, for some of you, you come from a tradition where you did communion monthly. In my tradition growing up, it was the first Sunday of the month. We did our normal church service and then a 20-minute tack-on service that was just communion. Others of you have done it different ways. Some of you come from traditions where it was once a quarter. And some of you have had a once-a-week tradition. So what's that all about? For many, many years, our church did communion the first Sunday of the month. And it was actually just prior to moving out of the old building and into the, in, into the junior high that we started doing weekly communion. And let me, let me show you why we came to that uh, personal conviction. And by the way, when I talk personal conviction, this is, I would put this in the category of institutional preference, not biblical mandate. You will not find a biblical mandate that says this is when you're supposed to do communion. You're not going to find it. And so what this comes down to is this is what we believe for us fulfills best some of what we see going on in the instruction having to do with communion. You don't have great passages that say uh, this is what a song order is supposed to look like or, or these are the instruments you're supposed to use on your stage or, or these are the plan, plans for my building. This is what it's going to... Uh, God gives us a lot of freedom in making these decisions. He gives us a lot of freedom in choosing when and how we will take communion. But he does give some specific instruction. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Words handed to Paul from Jesus Christ himself. He's actually responding to a problem in the Corinthian church. Their communion time would be, would be done in combination with something called a love feast. So they would come together and eat together, and then out of that would be a time of communion. Much like you had the, the uh, Passover meal, and out of that came communion. And the problem they were having in the Corinthian church is you had some people with a lot of money, and you had people with very little money, and they were kind of hoarding their food. And Paul's looking and saying, are you kidding me? You're here to share in, in the memory of the body and the blood of Jesus. Jesus, and you can't even share bread with each other? You can't even share a meal with each other? So he goes through and gives some details. He says, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord. On the night when I was betrayed, the Lord took some bread, gave it, and gave thanks for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. So the first reason that we went to weekly communion is we want to remember this often. We, we want every week to come together and be reminded of the central issue, the central theme of our faith. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for our sins, and we don't want to forget it. That is the core of the gospel, and we want to think about that every time we're together. That's really important to us. It says, in the same way he took the cup, 
after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes back. So here's the second beautiful thing. Every time we do this, we're witnessing. Some of you are like, oh, I don't like witnessing. I don't like telling people about Jesus. Every time you take that bread and you drink that cup, you're telling people about Jesus. Every time. If there's a person here who doesn't have a connection with Jesus or you bring someone who doesn't have a connection with Jesus, they're going to kind of afterward go, so the uh, juice and crackers, what was up with that? And it is a perfect opportunity to talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a way of witnessing on a regular basis. People will have the opportunity to come into that connection with God because of that. I had a friend over here this past week. We were standing outside in the parking lot, and he looked at the building, and he said, you guys don't have a cross in your building. What's that all about? And I said, man, if you could just walk through the doors, you'd see a huge one on the inside of our foyer. It's right there. For us, communion is showing off the cross every week. Every week we get to come in here and show off the cross. We get to show off what Jesus did for us when he died, was buried, and rose again. Now you keep going in that passage. It says, so anyone who eats the bread or drinks of this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. And you go a little further down, it says, but if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. So the third piece of this, it's a time to reflect and remember. It's a witness to a lost world, but it's also a chance for us to spend some time in personal reflection, looking at where we are are in our relationship with God? What sin am I coddling that I should be letting go? In what areas is my soul kind of off track right now? What does my relationship look like with God right now? Am I grieving or quenching the spirit in my life? On a weekly basis, we get the opportunity to stop long enough to ask questions of our soul. It's part of the reason that we really slow that part of church down and we take the time to to read some scripture and be in silence and let our hearts speak so that we can hear what's going on and take the time to examine ourselves. So for us, we found that, that weekly communion has been a beautiful expression of what's going on in that scripture. Now, it's funny because for many, many years, like I said, we would do monthly communion and there would be people who come who came from a weekly communion tradition. And they'd ask me the question, what's the deal? You know, why do you guys only do communion once a month? Do you not like Jesus? And I'm like, well, of course we like Jesus. I mean, what do you mean? And, and so they'd be kind of probing this. And, I, and I'd be coming up with these, you know, reasons as to why, well, you know, if you do it too often, it won't be as meaningful. So I guess that means we should only come to church like once a month or once a quarter. It would be a lot more meaningful, right? No, a pastor would never say that. You know, well, I, you know, crackers and juice, they're really expensive. I mean, you just can't, you can't come up with a good reason. There was no reason to keep saying let's not. And so we said, hey, the Bible doesn't forbid it. The Bible gives us freedom to do this. Let's see what this does to grow us in our relationship with God. I can't speak for you. I can speak for me. It's truly grown me in my relationship with God. And I love that we get to do that together weekly as a church family. Okay, breathing? Take a deep breath. Go ahead. Feel good? Here we go. We're keeping moving. Quick review of the past series. If you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. This was a great series. And we did it in 2004. It's been a long, 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 long time. It was teaching uh, from John Ortberg. I love John Ortberg's teaching. He's very scripture-based, very solid. And, you know, the concept of the series was, was basically um, a lot of us, we have big dreams, right? 
Oh, I'm going to accomplish this great thing for God. I'd love to do this or I'd love to do that. And, and, and if God would just ensure that I'd be safe and secure and nothing would go wrong, I'd do it. Hmm, really? Really? And then we have this story of Peter who's out in the middle of the water and Jesus comes walking to him. And he says, Lord, if you tell me to come out out there, I will. And Jesus says, okay. And Peter says, did I say that? You know, I mean, he's like, oh, really? And, and so he stands up and he puts one foot over and he puts the other foot over and he takes a couple of steps and he starts to sink. And I don't know why, but that's what we focus on. We focus on the fact that he started to sink instead of the fact that he's the one human in history besides Jesus that walked on water because he was willing to get out of the boat. In what area is God challenging you to jump out of the boat? You ever watch Shark Tank? This has nothing to do with the boat. But um, so Shark Tank, I like Chopped, I like Shark, Shark Tank. And they're both kind of the same program from this standpoint. Every once in a while, somebody will come on the show and I'm like, are you an idiot? You know, do you not watch the show? Do you know, not know that if you say that, they're going to destroy you? So they'll have these entrepreneurs, they'll come on and they're, they're, their uh, business is going pretty well. But they say, you know, I, I, I haven't gone full time yet because I'm, I'm afraid that if I go full time, you know, we, we need that income and that's really important. And then they'll do this, you know, so what do you need the 300000 for? Well, I'm planning on paying myself 100000 for the next three years. And all the sharks go, ah, you know, and, you know, Cuban will start, I ate macaroni for 17 years. And they're, they're all just ranting about, you know, you can't do that. You've got to take your feet. You've got to jump out of the water and you've got to see what happens. Now that's talking about running a business. We're talking about being people of faith, taking great steps for God. And God says, I want you to take those feet on the other side of the boat and take a walk instead of sitting comfy, secure in the boat and dreaming about what might possibly happen if you just possibly had the guts to just possibly put a foot over and find out what's on the other side. Great series. I wish I could tell you it's on the podcast, but I don't think they had recording invented back then. So anyway, um, now here's what's cool about that series. We, we, we started that, well, we started it, and two things were happening. We were in the middle of purchasing this property. So for us, it was kind of a, all right, church, are we going to step out of that boat and see what happens? And, you know, that's a long time ago. And it's cool to be here now and say, yeah, look, we walked across the lake. But, boy, there was a lot of time that I was like, glug, 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 what did we do? So, I mean, that was... <clears throat> That was cool. That's cool to see it all that time later. But the other thing we did is we wanted to give people from our church the opportunity to do some public communicating. And so that was one of the first summers that we asked people to get involved in taking one of the weeks and going ahead and teaching along with that. And I love doing that. It does a few things. It grows the people who are communicating. And so, you know, you look at John Beaker. I mean, John, if I were to croak today, talk John out of doing the engineering thing and just coming and preaching. The man can preach. He can really teach. He's grown as a gifted communicator. It grows a gift in people. That's really, really important. Beyond that, um, they have to take a risk. And of all of them, the irony of stepping out of the boat, I'm told that the number one peer fear people have is public speaking. For me, it's my number two or ten or something down there. Number one is going to the dentist. I went to the dentist this past week. Oh, my word. I sat in that chair. I was getting a headache. I could feel if they'd have put a blood pressure cup on me, kaboom, it had been all over. You know, they want to scrape my teeth. I'm like, don't do that. I can't stand that. Ugh. So anyway, that's my thing, but that's another sermon. Um, for you, fear of public speaking, having that opportunity in a safe environment, 
to try out that gift is really huge. I love that what we use is straight from Scripture. So we're really hearing what the Word of God has to say. There's unified, cohesive themes. So if you have five different people speaking, we're at least we're not jumping all over the map and listening to different people's interests. And it gives guardrails to run on. It's funny. One of the great fears people have when they get the chance to speak is, I won't know what to say. I don't know what to talk about. And believe it or not, I've been doing this for years. And I still, every Sunday, go, I'm going to run out of stuff. Have I ever run out of stuff? No, he's never run out of stuff. Some of you are like, you know, a 15-minute sermon wouldn't be all bad. What's your problem, dude? So anyway, and today you're getting like an hour and 15-minute service. We just turned up the speed. So anyway, um, what else? I want to show you what we're doing this summer. All the places to go, how will you know? So later this summer, we have some people that are going to be communicating to us from the Word of God, talking about the will of God in our lives. I mentioned this last week in one of the services. So my kids, I have a kid getting married in six weeks. I've got a daughter who's going to be starting teaching at Manuka Junior High in the fall. And two weeks after the wedding, the other son is leaving uh, to start school in Texas. All three of them are at major life decision points. And, and I know that a lot of you, you're there. You're at a point of making, how do we make a decision? When, when there are open doors, how do we know which door to go through? How do we know? And so that's why we'll be approaching uh, this particular teaching. So much like the first service, it's time to go. But you have nowhere to go, right? Good. So just give me a couple more minutes. What's the deal with the fig tree? What's the deal? I can't not do this, you know, because then it'll be imbalanced. The first got it, you guys didn't. What's the deal with the fig tree? The fig tree story is told in two different places in the Bible, Matthew and Mark. Matthew's version, he tells it like a guy. So I won't tell you the version Mark tells. But Matthew's version is a lot like guy. Concise, short, sweet, to the point, not a lot of details. Here's what happened, boom, done, over. So Matthew basically says, we were walking along the road. Jesus was hungry. He saw a fig tree, went over, no figs on it. He said, die. And it died, and it happened quickly, and they were all amazed. Okay, boom, done. Next. Oh, and by the way, they're curious about it, and Jesus says, I want to tell you the truth. If you have faith and don't doubt, you can move a mountain. Uh, your prayers matter. Okay. You come over to Mark, and Mark slows it down like the tender gender. And, and Mark says, I, I want to tell you more of the details of the story. You're, you're going to hear the whole thing, okay? So it starts with, on the following day. Now, stop is not in the Bible. That's mine. I didn't add to the Bible. I'm just helping you out. We got to stop. Because what's the following day? What happened the day before? Palm Sunday happened the day before. Triumphal entry. Biggest day in Jesus' ministry, probably next to feeding 10,000 people. I mean, this was huge. It was actually an absolutely massive day. So I'm sure to some degree, Jesus has what I have every Monday. Oh, the zombie of Monday. You're just kind of walking along. And you're like, that was, that was a great day. He's a little worn out. He's a little tired. He's walking along the road, we see. They walk along. They're coming from Bethany, going into, into Jerusalem. And it says he was hungry. I love that. I love that it tells us that Jesus was actually hungry. He, he got hungry. And he didn't, he didn't just like go, boom, there, not hungry anymore. He needed to find some food because he is, in all points, just like we are. So he's walking along the road. He's looking for something to eat. And then look at the next line, and I underline it. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Please, you got to read all the words. Seeing in distance a fig tree in leaf. He went over to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So they hear the news. Now you got to go back to that line. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. That is significant to these people. How many of you have fig trees in your backyard? In your house? 
How many of you have ever eaten a Fig Newton? Okay, good. So you know what a fig is. But outside of that, you don't know anything about figs. And this is part of the struggle we have with reading the Bible. It's this culture on the other side of the world. We don't know if it's spring, fall, winter. We don't know if it's snow on the ground. We don't know. We don't know anything about figs. Well, as it turns out, this is Passover time. So the figs would have bloomed. There should be baby figs on the tree. And then the leaves come in. So as Jesus goes over to that tree, the part about it not being the season for figs, it's not the season for ripe figs. But there should be something on that tree. There should be some figs there. He should be able to look back and see. And believe it or not, you can eat a non-ripened fig. Doesn't taste great. But if you're hungry the way Jesus was hungry, he'd have been more than willing to eat an unripened fig. Instead, he goes over, he finds this fig tree that has no figs and he says boom you're dead i'm done with you now what's that about well mark does something that really helps us to try to understand what's happening here because mark helps us to see what matthew did not help us to see this is actually a two-day event what happens in the middle they go and cleanse the temple They go to the temple, and Jesus says, get out of here. The temple at that point is a lot like the fig tree. It's got all the leaves of religion, but it doesn't have any of the fruit. It's putting on a great show, but it has no substance. And so as they're walking, this is what I love. We talk about as you walk along the way, teach your children. Jesus is doing an as you walk along the way, teach with a fig tree that has no figs on it. And he says, my goodness, if you're going to be a follower of mine, you better be more than all leaves. It's great that you do Christianese, and it's great that you Facebook little Jesus posts and all that kind. It's wonderful, and that you chain mail all your friends Jesus stuff, and woo, very nice. But is there one fruit on your tree? One. Because Jesus is kind of saying, do you remember that whole John 15 thing? I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you lift the leaves, you should find fruit, fruit that will last. He says, don't be like the fig tree. Don't be all fruit, all substance. All, all show no substance. Don't be all show no substance. Make sure that there's something going on underneath. Now, the next day, they pass by, they see the fig tree, and it is dead gone. And Peter looks, and and it says he remembered, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Well, no kidding. I told it to die. Of course it died. (laughs) And then Jesus shifts the lesson here. He says, hey, I want to tell you something. You could have done that. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that it'll come to pass, it'll be done. And I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it and it will be yours. And then he adds this part that Matthew didn't mention. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses, which may be harder than the whole mountain moving thing. What's he saying here? He's saying, I want you to have childlike faith. And as I read through this again, I was so convicted because, you know, at 53, I'm realizing that there are times in my spiritual life that I can logicalize and rationalize and not just have that faith of a kid that says, of course we can move that mountain. Of course it can be done. Because that's the kind of faith that God calls on from us, a childlike faith. So don't be all showing no substance and have a mountain-moving faith just like a child. Give you an assignment as you leave. So for, I don't know, probably two months, maybe a little bit more, Kim kept saying, you got to watch this movie. you got to watch this movie. 
And, and I like her movie recommendations. It's not that she recommends bad ones, but she said you might cry, and, you know, I don't like to cry, right? So anyway, um, it's called Little Boy. Anybody seen Little Boy? Okay, so Netflix it tonight. We're going to just like, we're going to kill Netflix watching this movie. But if you're going to watch it, um, if you are a sobber, you might want to do this alone. I, I was with my daughter and my wife, and I, there are parts that I just, you know, I'm like... <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, and I got a blazing headache and everything else because I'm holding it back instead of just letting it out. So um, the child is, is encouraged to have the faith of a mustard seed and he goes to the store and he finds a mustard seed and he says, this, this, and it just unfolds from there. And, and I, it's not a Bible story, okay? So please don't think I'm quoting Zechariah or something like that. But um, it shows what it means to have childlike faith. And that's what God is calling for in us. You're not all showing no substance and have the faith of a child that's able to move a mountain. All right? Kept you way over. Didn't that feel good? Get out of here. Goodbye.